I'm excited about today's episode because I get to speak to somebody that has an incredible background, has a lot to say about politics, and is really, after reading what you've talked about and your position on everything, I'm really excited for what you have to talk about. So in front of me, I have somebody who has been a guest columnist for the New York Times, LA Times, Boston Globe, the Chronicle, Christian Science Monitor. You worked with the ACLU for many years, and you were the ACLU's first story finder, and I like to talk about what that means. You have your BA in journalism, or I'm sorry, in history and journalism from Michigan State University, your master's in public administration from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Very impressive. Uh, you recently ran for supervisor of District 7 in San Francisco. You call yourself a pragmatic Democrat, which is a term I've never heard before. I'm excited to get into that. And you currently live with your husband, Lionel, on the west side of San Francisco. And I am excited to sit here today to talk to Joel and Guardio. Thank you, Joel, for coming on my show. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, to speak with you. And I'm excited to hear about everything that, 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 that you stood for, what you've talked about, what your education has been, what your experiences have been, because you bring a lot to the table and you're a great voice for San Francisco. That I think we need to get out there more. So, Joel, thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad that you do this podcast. Happy to be here. Hey, thank you. I appreciate that. I love hearing that from all my guests because it and it. It means a lot that you take the time out of your day to come and sit and talk to me, somebody you don't know, because, you know, more of these, these conversations, I think, are needed in the real world when we get so much of the quick hits that we don't really get to understand who people are behind the scenes. So thank you for all that. Now, you came to my, to my attention because throughout the course of, you know, San Francisco politics, which, you know, there's a lot to talk about with, with that. You, you know, you had some positions in major articles like your views on... Uh, what do you want to call it? The underfunding of police departments or understaffing uh, your stance on housing for, for the for the uh, homeless. And, the, and the re recently, as we, we talked about here, the recall of the school board of San Francisco and the way you explained everything was just so so different than what we're used to hearing here from the mainstream in San Francisco, because you seem to see things more in the center part of it because you seem to get both sides of the story rather than, than just only one angle of it, which maybe takes center stage more often than, 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 than that. So I'm curious at first, how did you get your start into politics now? Where did this, this whole thing come from? Was this something that you wanted to do from the time you were a kid growing up in Saginaw? So I did not start with the idea of being in politics. I started as a journalist. So I worked on my high school newspaper and I went to undergrad uh, in, a, in a journalism major at Michigan State. And I was ready to take on the world as a journalist and expose truths and, and show people what's really going on in the world and hold people accountable, hold the powerful accountable and, and give uh, the underserved a voice. So that was my mission and goal and hopes to be a journalist. And so I did that for a number of years and the journalism industry pretty much collapsed. And so I had to find ways to use those skills uh, in, in other avenues. And so that's when I started working for places like the American Civil Liberties Union, using those communication skills. Um, and I worked for some uh, tech companies and public relations. And, um, but the part about politics is, as a journalist, I covered City Hall. From the outside, I held people accountable. I, I looked at what was going on. And you know, you form opinions, even though you're being an objective journalist. And I would see, wow, that just doesn't seem right. Or, and at some point, I thought I could do better than that, or anyone could do better than that, or someone should do better than that. And so, that was the seed for me to go into politics in the sense of 
uh, I spent so many years writing about and observing. We're a little closer to Okay. You. There we go. That spent so many years writing about and observing what was going on. And I thought, why don't I get into the arena and see if I can make change from within? And so that was the transition into um, local politics. Wow. So how did you get from uh, Michigan to Harvard? What was that transition there like? Well, it was a, a lot of life and living in between. <laughs> what was it the was, time gap in between? Yeah, I went, to, I went to Harvard as they call it a mid-career student. So I was an old student. I was in my 30s going uh, back, to, back to school, back to the campus, right? So 30s, not old. Yeah, well, 30s. <laughs> I was like, pushing late 30s. So. Uh, That's still so, just a number, just right. a number. <laughs> so um, yeah, so that was a, uh, I'd won a scholarship to go get my master's degree. And the scholarship was based on work that you have done in the real world. And so I'd you know, worked a number of years as a journalist in community advocacy and with ACLU. And so um, those experiences together added up to, uh, uh, it made me qualify for this scholarship that was offered for people who worked in that arena, in public policy, the press. Uh, and so I was fortunate enough to win that scholarship and that's why I went to Harvard. But before then, um, I grew up in uh, General Motors factory town of Saginaw, Michigan. It was the real, the true rust belt. Uh, I was a kid in the 1980s when the economy collapsed and we had the great recession, uh, you know, from the 1980s and the Reagan era. And if anyone ever watched the famous documentary, Roger, Roger and Me, by <laughs> Mike, it put Michael Moore on the map. Yeah. That was filmed and produced uh, basically while in my youth in Michigan. And it was uh, filmed, you know, all throughout Michigan, largely in Flint. Uh, it was just up the road from Saginaw. Everyone knows Flint because of the bad water. Yeah. And Saginaw, we are just a smaller version of Flint uh, further up the road that people don't know as much about. But we had the same uh, issues, economic, social, all, all the same kind of issues that Flint had growing up. So that kind of gives you, a, if you understand Flint, Michael Moore, Roger Mead, General Motors, Rust Belt, you understand kind of where I came from. And, you know, the people who, who lived in those cities you either worked at the General Motors plant or you did a job that serviced the people who worked in the plant. And then there were the people on the assembly line and there were the managers, right? And the assembly line workers lived on one side of town and the managers lived in the big houses in the, in the suburbs. My mother was a house cleaner for the managers. So a lot of my childhood, I remember my mom bringing me with her to clean houses. And uh, so, so I got to see the, the mansions of the era, but not really be of it. So it was, gotcha. it was interesting, uh, interesting childhood. Well, I'll tell you the people around here know about Saginaw just because of Draymond Green. There you go. So he put <laughs> right. Saginaw on the map when nobody knew about it around the Bay Area. But going back to that, that's an interesting point now. Have you been back in a, recently? Oh, yeah. I, uh, my mother uh, lived there, and so I would go back and visit. I was raised by my mother and grandmother, and so I would go back there you know, once or twice a year, gotcha. uh, especially until my grandmother passed, and then uh, visit my mom. And then about just before the pandemic, uh, I moved my mom from Michigan to California so I wouldn't have to keep flying back. And she's getting older, so I wanted to be able to kind of take care of her. And we, we, uh, she settled in Vacaville because uh, more, you know, economical to, to live there than San Francisco. And just a little yeah, bit. A little bit. So, yeah, so she's in uh, uh, low-income senior housing in Vacaville and, and loving it, really enjoys it. So it's great. 
Well, that's good of you to be the good son like that. You know, I know I, I want to make sure that when my mom gets to that point there, that I'm right there doing whatever I got to do to make her life as best as I can, considering what she's done for me, helping me get to where I'm at today, where I can actually even be sitting here talking to you. So it's great to hear those, those kinds of stories because you don't really hear that a lot from people, like what you have to go through, unless it's like in your case here in politics, unless it fits in, the, in a five second clip, you don't really know what people are going through in the background there. What would you say the climate of Saginaw, Flint is like now? Does it, having not been there, I get the, the, the sense that the most of that area there is just, all I see is what you see about Detroit, the empty homes and there's nothing there outside the main area. Is it still like that same way up there? Well, it's, it's, the media will distort things in a sense that, it, I mean, there is a truth to that or truth to what you say, but it's not the whole story. You know, a place like Saginaw is not just a wasteland or a you know, totally destitute place. There's still a lot of good people living there and trying to make it in life and trying to make the best of a bad situation. And, and you will see uh, oasis or spurts and growths of like wonderful things, you know, happening in places that have a lot of challenges. And so uh, it's an issue of, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, me being from there, you know, there's a term flyover country. People feel like, you know, people fly from New York to L.A. and San Francisco to New York. And it's, they don't give much thought or pay much attention to a place like Saginaw, Michigan. But a lot of good people and good things come from there and are happening there. And, and they've gotten the short end of the stick, too. So, you know, I think Multiple. it's important to uh, uh, if we're going to have a whole, you know, a united country, the United States of America, we can't ignore uh, places that are facing challenges. We need to invest. We need to invest and make sure that we're everyone is uh, has the ability to to thrive. You know. So, for give me one one example is, you know, when I was a kid in the 1980s in Saginaw, you know, that was the beginning of what you're describing now. Like it, things w were going really well from the 50s through the 70s, and then the cliff kind of went over a cliff in the 80s, and it was on the way down, right, economically. Yeah. But it, you know, but despite that. You know, there was really some innovative things happening. Like I went to a school where they did a, a lot of innovation in education. And I can tell you there's a whole bunch of uh, classmates that I had uh, through that uh, particular, it was a public school, uh, by the way, which is fantastic. Uh, the, the way they taught, the way they innovated, it really inculcated into us like a, a greater mission. And I know a lot of people who came from that era in that school who are doing a lot of great things in the world. So it's, it's a education, public school, all that's really important, but you need to invest in it. Yes, that's, that's one thing I wanted to get to, too. So you came from an area that was based around the auto industry. Everything, all the jobs there just recirculated around GM, Chrysler, Ford, and whatnot. Since they pretty much have left, what has taken its place in terms of, this is where a lot of the residents have transitioned to in terms of careers, jobs. Do you see more entrepreneurs coming out there? I don't Has Amazon or any of these big companies said, we're going to fill in the gap? Again, if you only listen to like the mainstream media and you've never been there, you may think that unemployment is high, that the drug use is rampant, that there's no jobs out there. But what's the real story about how they've been able to adjust from only being dependent upon the industry to what's actually out there now? Well, Detroit's having kind of a renaissance. There's a lot uh, going on in Detroit. You know, you know, University of Michigan, which is Ann Arbor, not too far from Detroit, has one of the best engineering programs in the world. So a lot of good engineers are being uh, trained at the University of Michigan. And so companies like Google and other tech companies are smart and they realize that let's tap into this, the new young crop of engineers 
And uh, it's a lot cheaper to have a big house in Michigan than it is to, have, to live in Silicon Valley. So you see there's a footprint. The tech companies do go to places like Detroit and they recruit people from University of Michigan and, and uh, people are able to set up, have lives. You know, and I think that's, you know, you don't want to just say there's only one place that is the best place to be. The best place to be can be anywhere. It just depends on if the people are willing to go there and, and create community. And so, you know, in Detroit, there's so much opportunity right now because, you know, you can turn a page and, and, and try a new industry. And by the way, General Motors is still there and they're doing everything they can to pivot to ele uh, electric uh, cars. And, you know, Tesla's given them a good run for their money. And but G <laughs> yeah. GM is uh, don't count them out. You know, they know how to scale. They, they you know, they can. Uh, I think in, when the when the day comes that everyone's driving an electric car, General Motors, Ford, like they'll still be in the picture. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, they they're, they announced already they're they're not going to make regular cars anymore. Like they're like General Motors, Ford, they are talking about all electric in just a few years. And Ford doesn't even call themselves a car company anymore. They say we're a mobility company. So I think that's it's all about you know embracing innovation, making sure that you're embracing the change. Uh, you know, the, the hockey great Wayne Gretzky always said, don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck is going. <laughs> and I think, you know, a lot of people are realizing that we need to do that. And, and to bring it back to San Francisco, um, we also, you know, we're famous to, for being like an innovative and liberal city. But actually, uh, we're uh, the people who live here can tend to be very averse to change. And, and uh, you know, the. San Francisco is a place where a lot of people gravitate toward or immigrate to or come to. Like I came here so I could be truly fully gay, right? Uh, coming from a place like Michigan where it wasn't very easy in the 1980s or 90s to, to, be, to be gay. So people come to San Francisco, a lot of people are transplants, but San Francisco often um, people want to freeze it in amber in the day that they arrived. Because when they arrived, they're like, this is a wonderful place. And then they want it to always be that way. But when the next generation comes 10, 20 years down the road who want to have a different vision, want to change it, then there's resistance. And people say, no, keep San Francisco the way it is, the glory days. But the glory days are always, should always be looking forward. You had said in the setup that I'm a, uh, what do you say? I'm a pragmatic, pragmatic Democrat. Pragmatic Democrat. I, I often say, I actually say I'm a forward-looking pragmatic Democrat. You got to be forward-looking can't just always look at backward and think about the glory days. Like there really were, 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 were glory days really, did they really ever exist? Maybe, but maybe only for some people, right? It, it wasn't glory days to be gay in the 1980s. <laughs> it was really tough, right? So now is the glory days or, or even better in the future. Trying to make it, we're, no, we've been given the hand that we've been dealt with, with now. So how do we take it and make the best situation that we actually can? What has been your biggest, uh, pushback, I guess, from your own experiences in terms of maybe talking to people who want to keep things the way they are? Is it just because do they really think it's better for the city? Do they think it's just better for them? I'm used to this, so I don't want to change. It makes me scared. Or is there something else going on here that's maybe speaking to a bigger picture that maybe, or well, at least that I can't see, but maybe you can see from what you've actually been through? Yeah, it's interesting. These things are cyclical because there's a, um, I, I, found on YouTube, there's an old documentary, KQED, from 1978, right? It's kind of fun to watch, you know, the bell bottoms and the looks, and, right? <laughs> yeah. and the, right? So it's, it's clearly the 70s for sure. But they're talking about uh, the housing crisis of San Francisco. I thought, this is interesting because 
here we are almost 50 years later and we have a housing crisis in San Francisco. And so when you watch this documentary from 1978, people are saying the same, you, if not for the bell bottoms people are wearing, you would think you could run that documentary today. It would say the same thing about, uh, oh, we have too many newcomers. Uh, and, and they're driving up the prices and, the, and, and boy, you know, things are so much better in the 1950s, <laughs> right? And today the people say, oh, things are so much better in the 1970s. Like they're, they're hearkening back to how, how great things were at a time when, when it actually was that time, people said the whole, the whole city was, was going haywire and too many new people coming. So, so it's, it's a sick, I think it's whoever arrives here stakes their claim, creates their paradise, and then they want to freeze it and forever be that, right? And then not entertain or, or allow a new generation of people to come in and, and discover their, or create their own paradise, right? I think you, we need to be open to things will change and we, we have to make room for the next generation. That's a very good, good point to put it though. I never thought about what we're saying today is these are the problems we got to fix them it's never been this bad but if you really can go back in time it's actually they said the same thing in the 70s and 80s maybe with different uh, dynamics but they were saying the same thing oh they're changing it's never going to be the same again what are we going to do it's all going to hell in a handbasket right but really it's we're talking about the same things just with different dy dynamics here now we have the tech industry the cost of housing and whatnot and the irony is the tech industry did not exist in the 1970s in the way it is now. There yes. was right. And yes, so they're the boogeyman now, but they weren't the boogeyman then. It was it was the insurance companies or the banks downtown or whatever it was. It was a different boogeyman. It was, now it's the tech company. Now before it was them. That's like, right. I, I remember. Do you remember that big old that 76 Unical um, tower that was when you get in the Bay Bridge to go to Oakland? We had the big digital clock. Do you remember that thing? Oh yeah, yeah. I remember that that skyline. That was the only thing I remember. Now you go to the East Cut over there, and it's all these tall skyscrapers with multi-million dollar condos. It's like it's changed the whole landscape of the city. I mean, I think it looks nice, but I guess if you've been here since the 70s or 60s, you're like that's not the San Francisco I know. So I can see how that generation may influence it to, to say that the city's not going where they want it to go to. What do you think is really at the heart of the, when people say housing crisis in San Francisco, are, do you think we're really talking about just the, the price of it? Do you think that people want to, they want to have that suburban home with the front yard, backyard, and the, you know, two cars in the garage, and you really can't do that in San Francisco, say for a few neighborhoods on the west side? Or is it they're talking about, the homeless people in the streets who don't have housing. What's really at the center when people say the housing crisis is just unbelievable? Yeah, well, ho housing is a big umbrella term and there's so much uh, nuance to it. Right? You know, you can't equate housing and homelessness are two different issues. Of course, underlying it is people need a place to live, right? Mm -hmm. So that's important. Everybody deserves a place to live, right? So, but there's different, you, you can't talk about them in the same way. You have to kind of parse out, like, are we going to talk about homelessness or are we going to talk about just housing in general? Let's, let's start with housing in general is, you know, the you know, San Francisco is a seven by seven mile peninsula, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty small. Everyone, for the most part, wants to live here. It's a very popular place to live. So the question is, who gets to live here, right? And, uh, and really, everyone in San Francisco, for the most part, is a Democrat, about 9% Republican. So really, uh, you know, these are Democrats trying to figure out these big questions. And so that's why I say there are a million shades of blue, of Democratic blue, <laughs> right, within this little seven by seven mile peninsula. And they're fighting each other. And whoever wins local elections, whichever shade of blue wins, gets to have control and decide the future of the city. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what is the one issue, the most central or underlying issue that all these shades of blue are fighting about land use? Because 
we're such limited land. And so the questions are, how many people should live here? And if there is a population limit, who should live here? And that is, that is the baseline fight among all the Democrats, because when you start asking about a population limit, it gets in a very th tricky area, because now you've set a limit to then how many homes, meaning a limit to the people, but under market forces, prices will just keep going up and up and up, and then who can afford that? Only the rich people, right? So that's a problem. You know, I think you need to um, build more housing so there's at all price points, because a lot of people will say, only build 100% affordable housing. It sounds great. That's a great catchphrase, and, and I would not disagree with that. I would love to have a world where every house is affordable, but you have to decide what is the definition of affordable. And if it's impossible to build or there's no resources to build it, by saying that by default, you are saying, then I want no new housing. And then you're perpetuating the problem. If there's no new housing, then the existing housing prices will just keep going up and up. So I think we need to build price housing at all price points because if you build market rate housing, uh, it takes pressure off of the existing housing, meaning if there's only one set of housing, the rich people are going to bid for it and the highest bidder is going to get it and everyone else is left out in the cold. We need to create housing where the rich people can afford to buy and live in and not cannibalize and take over other housing stock that for middle income or lower income folks. Do you think with this pandemic and everything that it's done with the work from home and that's still an ever evolving um, thing, you know, what's that going to look, look like ne next year? We thought it was going to, everybody's going to be back to work now. And now we're like, okay, maybe it's going to be pushed out to, we don't know when. Do you see that the development of commercial real estate designed just for office space is going to be something that people are going to say, that's an opportunity to turn that into condos or apartments or you think we're going to like hold off on that i think we have to be creative now there's there's you know there's restrictions restrictions meaning if you take a, a salesforce office building you could say let's just fill that with housing it's a great idea but there's some practical reasons why that might not work because the way it was designed the way it was built to retrofit it to put the you know the plumbing and bathrooms and, and create the, the how, you know, like proper housing living conditions on, on, in an office building with that many floors, it, it might be more expensive to retrofit the building than to just build the housing somewhere else or tear it down and start over. Right. So, yeah. You know, but there's a lot of uh, older buildings uh, that are easier to convert. So I think it's, it's a matter of being creative and like looking at where it's, what's the easiest and most inexpensive places to convert and start there first. Just start doing something, right? When you, when you have a crisis, if you're bleeding, going to the ER, whether you stop the bleeding first, right? So like mm -hmm. just start, at, start with something and then uh, go from there. But I think we need to be open-minded and creative about, and re, I mean, we need to reimagine uh, how we work and live. The pandemic forced us to do it. I think it was all coming eventually, this reimagining. Pandemic just accelerated it. You know, there's no reason why in the 10 years leading up to the pandemic that everyone had to commute, you know, into an office like the people probably were able to most people were probably able to work from home already. But there was just this social protocol that you go into an office. Well, the pandemic yeah. proved for certain jobs that's not necessary. So that's going to change. We have to now we have to reimagine uh, what life looks like. So to me, that's an exciting opportunity. To, so to some, it can be very scary, and it is scary. You're kind of reimagining everything you've known before. 
but with that fear, uh, there is opportunity. And with that opportunity, good things can happen. I will tell you that living here when the pandemic hit, it really showed me just how much everybody was just waiting for that last needle on the haystack before everything just, just crumbled. Because the second that everybody could leave, from what I've seen, people I live with around here, they all said, oh, working from home, I'm out of San Francisco. That's that one thing that I needed to leave here. And then people just left to go to the East Bay, out of state, out of some places, out of, out of country, because that was just the one thing that they were waiting for. They were already, they're like, the rents are too high, but we're going to continue living here because the jobs are here. And then as soon as that pandemic hit up, oh, that's the perfect excuse. And they, and then they all left, but a lot of people left and they haven't come back since. They're like, why would I now? Now I don't have to go into Salesforce or to Microsoft or Twitter that doesn't even have the office here anymore. Now I can just go work from home and do all that. So I really saw how much we were, when they talked about how overpriced San Francisco was, it was, it was being generated, in my opinion, because people just said, well, we have to go to work and that's where it is. It's just, it's just more, more simpler. And as soon as they can go home, like, aha, uh-huh, that's all I needed. But then getting back to where you're saying building the housing, it's like, where can we build this? It is like no land that then, unless you want to build up like in Twin Peaks or something. And then that, then you get into the whole, well, it's going to take away the view, which is going to get a lot of pushback. So it's almost to me like what we're going to have to build is just multi-family housing, condos, apartments. But then is that what people want? Or they're like, hey, I just want to live in San Francisco, so I'll take what I can get. Maybe I don't get the backyard, the front yard, the big garage, but I have a house in San Francisco. Like, Are you seeing that people, do they just want housing? Or is it just, I want that track home from the 1950s, but there's only so many in the city and right. we can't build them and, anymore. And I think the, you know, people are also starting to question the whole concept of the suburban track home of the 1950s. What was known as the American dream from the 50s well into the 80s and the 90s and even today, um, I think people are questioning because you have to build further and further away from uh, city centers you know, to create more uh, housing of that style. And we're in a climate crisis energy crisis like there's so many crises that that exacerbates right when you people are sprawled and spread out and then they have to drive to get places and there's no public transportation you know so i you know before the 1950s you know prior to world war ii you know unless you were a farmer living on the farm everyone lived in urban centers right and mm-hmm. there were street cars and i mean you know if you look at los angeles before World War II, I think it's pretty shocking to, for, to realize is that it had the most amazing uh, intricate uh, system of streetcars. You could go from downtown to Santa Monica to Hollywood on a streetcar, right? But what happened after World War II? They ripped out, tore up all that infrastructure so they could build freeways that never existed before because the car, auto industry, the mm-hmm. oil industry, all of it, they had a vested interest to like, Let's pivot. Let's completely change society into a car-focused society. Uh, you know, if you lived before the 1950s, that was new. We didn't have a car-focused society, and then we did. And so, for the last 70 years, that's what it is. Um, and now we're starting to wonder: Is it really uh, all it was cracked up to be? Like we're seeing little cracks in the in the uh, uh, you know infrastructure, and also cracks in society as far as the stressors of having to commute and rely on a car and, and then build further and further out, right? So I think people are going to see the value of going back to a system that also worked really well uh, before the 1950s, where more public transportation, more uh, walkable areas, you know, and, and it, that could be pretty joyful, I think. I've seen where that has, I mean, I definitely seen that, that shift even in my own life. You know, me and my wife talk about this, you know, I'm 39, she's uh, 36. 
probably shouldn't say her age on here, <laughs> but we had talked about this a while ago. It's like, it feels like what you're supposed to do is buy that track home. It feels like you're supposed to have kids. It feels like, you know, I'm supposed to be able to do, to do all the work and then you're supposed to take care of the family because that's what we saw growing up. We saw the, 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 uh, trans, uh, the well, I, should, I should say we saw it transitioning, but we still had the media, movies, everything was still with that old school mi- mindset of like, you know, couple gets married in the late 20s they buy this awesome home they have two dogs two kids two cars in the garage white pick events the whole shebang and you kind of felt that if you didn't get that that something's wrong with 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 you so we're at a, uh, we're like in a spot now where we decided it's not prudent for us to have children because you know on on one hand you know we don't have the same support with our parents because you know my, my mother she lives farther away my dad's no longer w- with us and her, her parents enjoy traveling so it can be difficult to say, you know, we don't have that family support for like babysitting and whatnot. Well, we can go out and work. It's pretty much we have to do everything on our own. So having kids means you got to pay for childcare, And that's from what I've heard from what people spend on childcare. It's like, geez, you might as well have a third career because it's so expensive. On top of that, someone else is raising your, your kids. So in my opinion, you kind of lose that bonding time with your, with your child at a young, a young, a young age. So then if you're not going to have children, do you need the big home? Do you need the four bedroom place if it's only you two? which makes sense for having like a place like a condominium, one, two bedroom, because it's just enough room for you guys more to go out and see, have a dog. It, people who don't, who aren't from San Francisco can't believe the fact that there's more dogs than children in the city because right. a lot of us have the same mindset. It's like, it's so expensive. It takes two people to have an income to make it work here. I mean, San Mateo County, for example, if you don't have a median income of somewhere around $300,000, you're not going to be able to afford a home there. I mean, it's crazy that that's two incomes anywhere else. You can live like a queen and king for a $300,000 a year here. It's like that kind of gets you into the market of what you think you want. But even then is what you could afford, what you really envision the neighborhood, how much you have to put, how much work you have to put into it, crime and safety, how far from the schools. So I, I like, what but, we, but yeah. imagine if we changed housing policy and use your example, uh, you know, Maybe you want to have kids, but maybe you're not because of the housing situation. But think about this, um, you know, the sunset or lots of the west side are just rows and rows and rows of single family homes, which were, you know, the sunset used to be just sand dunes, by the way. Like it was sand dunes all the way to the ocean. Golden Gate Park was just sand dunes. There was nothing. And so planners came in and turned, turned it into a park and then said we're going to turn it into housing and we're going to build rows and rows of single family homes for then a great Irish population right and so this is the 1930s and 40s um, you know but imagine if those single family homes could be if there could be small apartment buildings out there or fourplex or that way multiple generations could live in the same building right the grandparents the you know the adults, the kids could, you know, they could have their own unit they, and you could still have a backyard, right? There are backyards on the sunset. Like uh, there are ways to make it work, right? Sometimes people look at things as all or nothing. It's like, oh my God, I can't have the Manhattanization of San Francisco. So therefore <laughs> no housing whatsoever. Just keep everything a single story, right? That's not going to do you any good because ultimately it's going to hurt you in the long run. Because right now you see uh, elderly folk who have lived in their home on the west side for the last 50 years, well, they might be in their mid 80s now. And now they're realizing, oh, I can't navigate the stairs. I, I, I don't want to upkeep this big house. What do I do? Uh, there's nowhere for me to go. There's no elevator building in my neighborhood. I have to leave my neighborhood. I have to relocate somewhere else. But imagine if we had a five, six, even eight story uh, elevator building on the transit corridors, you know, on the west side, 
you know, the elderly person could say, I can stay in my beloved neighborhood, downsize, and then open up this house I'm at for another young family to live in, right? They could rent it out or sell it, whatever it is, but it, it, it creates fluidity. Mm -hmm. You know, right now we fossilize, right? It's important to have fluidity so people can move to where their needs are met and have their needs met and then allow room for newcomers to come in. But this is all about housing policy, right? And for the last 40, 50 years, we've had bad housing policy in San Francisco. And now we're reaping the negative consequences of that. And I think it's, but I think there's a turning point happening because the very same people who downzoned West Portal Avenue, for example. Mm -hmm. So West Portal Avenue was created 100 years ago because they decided to put a tunnel through Twin Peaks and have a train go through there so they could build housing on the west side, which remember used to be sand dunes. They wanted to open it up to make it easy to get downtown. So, and the concept then, if you, if you take the train and you, you exit the tunnel at West Portal Avenue and you look at the very end of West Portal, you're gonna see a six story apartment building built during the Art Deco era which was the original plan for that, that uh, area of the city. Uh, but in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, when people started thinking, I want to freeze San Francisco where it is, the people got together and down zone. They, they actually said, passed a law that said, no, nothing can be built more than one story. Mm. In an area that had a six-story apartment building, right? So now you've got a place that has trains and had a six-story building and everything else is one story. So. But the, the very people who passed that law 30, 40 years ago are now elderly. And now they're realizing, oh, this is not good. I wish there were six-story apartment buildings I could downsize to, as I mentioned before, to right, right. age safely in place, stay in my neighborhood. And also the idea of their adult children had to move away and they don't get to see their grandchildren because there's nowhere for right. the next generation to live. So I, I, you're seeing older people come around and say, embrace, yes, okay, maybe we should build more housing uh, in San Francisco. So, so I think we're, we're turning a corner on that. Well, that's good because I've never seen that. I've never really heard that point of view. Uh, but let's, let's take another point of view. Let's say I'm a you know, Google exec and I make a lot of money. And I, you know what? I want to live in that house on West Portal, for example, because I love the neighborhood. It's clean. It's far away. It's uh, this nice little kept area. But I'm paying five, six million dollars, whatever it is to buy a house out there because of the neighborhood. So if I spend that much money on, on a home, I would like to keep the neighborhood pristine the way that I wanted to. So how do you tell someone like that? Hey, you know, I see where you're coming from, but you know, we got to think bigger picture here because of the number of houses. And then he's like, well, then why did I pay six million to live in this neighborhood if you want to like redevelop it? Is that kind of, I would think that's kind of the pushback that a lot of people are getting in terms of building more homes. It's like, I paid a premium to get right, that one right. house in that neighborhood. And you want to tell me you want to develop that into like four or like the neighborhood into like four or five stories. It's like, well, the person who, who buys that premium house, I'm sure they like amenities. I'm sure they like going to nice restaurants. I'm sure they like having services. Right. And if no one can afford to live in San Francisco who, who uh, participates in those services, that person's their their quality of life will go down. They're like, how come my restaurant is not open, or I can't? Right? Well, the servers can't afford to live here, or we right? So mm -hmm. we don't have enough workers, you know. So I think uh, people need to realize that, you know, in to have a functioning city, we need to make room and allow for people at all income levels to be here because it's an ecosystem that and everyone has to uh, everyone has to have the opportunity to, to thrive and have a place, right? And so and and also. 
you know, this is not an all or nothing situation. The person who wants that larger house on the west side, we're not saying we're going to bulldoze every house on the west side and turn every parcel into a skyscraper condo building. You know, it's, it's, we're being reasonable here. It's about, you know, uh, integrating, you know, you know, great example, a great visual would be everyone, the world, the most famous photo of San Francisco are the painted ladies, yeah. Alamo Square, and everyone, you just, you, you can picture that photo in your head, right? And the way the photo is cropped on the postcards and on the television, you, you know exactly what it looks like. If the camera pulled out just a little bit, you know what it would show you? Literally right next to the last painted lady on that row is a seven-story apartment building. Literally, right next inches, away, it's right there. It does it ruin? Does it ruin? <laughs> no, it's the most beautiful spot in the city. It's like the point is, you know, why not? Why can't an apartment? It, it's it's been there a hundred years. Like that apartment building can coexist with a single-family home, and it can still look good. I right? thought you were going to talk about that empty lot because one of those houses got demolished, didn't it? Oh, that I'm not Some, sure. Yeah, but somewhere it, around there, I remember. Oh, this is the painted lathes, <laughs> and there's an empty lot right there. I'm like, well, whoever owns that property is. Well, <laughs> speaking of empty lots, let me tell you about a great empty lot story. Because you said earlier, where are we going to build housing in San Francisco? Uh, and this is a classic example. It, talk about the political uh, nature of San Francisco and the shades of blue. It all comes together in this one story. There's a parking lot downtown that's for valet parking for Nordstrom shoppers. So it's just a big open parking lot in the middle of downtown, right? And so uh, developers wanted to put housing there. And the idea was, you know, if we do 400 units of market rate housing, so that's, you know, that's not going to be cheap. That's like, you know, expensive housing. All right, granted. If we do that, the fees generated from that, because whenever a developer builds something, they have to pay fees into a affordable housing fund that right. is used to then build affordable housing. They it, said really fast. This is the Pickwick garage area. Uh, it's, it's near just see a mission. Yeah, it's like six. It's it's over okay. Sixth Street and okay. Yeah, yeah I remember Stevenson, hearing about the the street is Stevenson. Gotcha. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Go on. <laughs> so so the idea was if we can build four hundred units of a market rate housing, it's going to allow us to build a hundred units of affordable housing, right? Mm -hmm. All in the same complex, right? But it's going to be a big complex that's five hundred units of housing on a parking lot. So we're not displacing anyone already living there, but people opposed it and said, oh. It's going to create shadows. It's going to displace people who live in the nearby buildings because the, the wealthier people who live there are just going to change the nature and makeup of the neighborhood, right? And so progressives, uh, when I talked about those million shades of blue, there are the two dominant shades are progressives and moderates. These are labels created by the media. Um, and the progressives, for whatever reason, tend to be the ones who want to only advocate for 100% affordable housing. And the moderates tend to be the ones who say, let's build all types of housing at all price points. So it became this epic battle on the Board of Supervisors between the progressive faction and the moderate faction. And the progressive said, no, we are going to deny this 500 unit uh, development on a parking lot. Really fast, just so I can see, I want to look at the map yeah. here. So this is Stevenson and Six. Where was it at that we're talking about here? Uh, so we have... Uh, that. See that big... It's got to be that big parking lot. Do you see the... This one here? This is at 6 and... Yeah, but see that, that parking lot? There oh, you go. Isn't this the 5th Emission garage? Uh, no, no, no. 5th Emission is is up oh, further. That's... It's up further. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Okay, yeah, yeah, so 5th yeah. and... All right. 
Yeah, fifth mission is this bit. Okay, that's that guy. That's where right. it is. So we're, so we're talking, talking about that parking lot. Stevenson and fifth right here. So we go down to Stevenson and sixth. There. This guy right here. There you go. That big okay. Old, that big old parking that's lot. That's the one. That's All the right. one. So that was going to be 500 units of housing. And the progressives on the board of supervisors said no. They hold the majority. And so it did not get built. So you progressives. Know? But we said, lost. But the point here's the point. We lost 100 affordable units of housing. So people who say, who claim, I'm only for affordable housing, then why did you give up 100 units? You just, there, there's 100 people who now, can, can now will now no longer be able to live there. See, you know, if I, if, if I just took a random guess, I would have said people on the conservative side would, 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 would have said, why would we put housing there? It's going to affect businesses and traffic and blah, blah, blah. But it's the people on the progressive side who I would think would be wanting to add more homes. They're the ones saying, well, nah. In, in San Francisco, the, the, the definition of progressive and moderate do not usually match the dictionary definition or even the national definition sometimes. So progressive, uh, that's why I call myself a forward looking Democrat because, uh, progressive is a great word. Progressive means forward looking the future, you know, change. But unfortunately in San Francisco, progressive often means the opposite. And the moderates are the ones who are actually trying to change the city. Like, for example, uh, just to give you names that people might actually recognize. So every, I think everyone knows Mayor London Breed. Mm-hmm. She's considered a moderate Democrat by San Francisco standards because she wants to build housing everywhere. Scott Weiner, our state senator, is considered a moderate because he wants to build housing everywhere. David Campos, who everyone probably knows, he was just uh, he's actively seeking uh, election to the state assembly and he was on the ballot recently. He's a former supervisor. He's considered a progressive and when he was a supervisor, he backed uh, a measure called the moratorium uh, in the mission, where, which was going to ban all new market rate housing for a period of time. So he was a progressive against you know, market rate housing, whereas Scott Weiner and London Breed are moderates who want to have market rate and affordable housing. So just to, it's, it's a lot to take in. It's very confusing because uh, oftentimes voters in San Francisco get tricked in the sense that they're highly educated folks and they're high information and follow national politics, but they may not understand the nuance of local politics. So people, Democrats love to call themselves, I'm a good progressive Democrat. And so when they hear locally a candidate saying, I'm a progressive, they say, yeah, that's what I want. And they vote for a local progressive, not realizing they may not be the person that fits their own values, at least on local issues. You, you brought up a great point here because back in, was it 2018, we had Prop C in San Francisco? Was it 2019? The, uh, the homeless uh, funding right, to tax. Right. Um, if you listen to, the, uh, to, the, to just the media, you would think, okay, there's this ballot on the measure that's going to provide God knows how many millions of dollars to pour into the homelessness program. Sounds like a great, great idea. We're going to tax corporations, and then all that money is going to be put into this thing to help the homeless. What got me really surprised was when Mayor Bree came out and said, we actually don't need money. We have plenty of money. Don't vote for that because we have plenty of money. It's not a money issue. It's managing itself. It's basically getting the infrastructure together. So dumping more money into this isn't going to solve the problem, which is not something you would have thought to have heard from somebody who's a Democrat in San Francisco. You would have thought, yeah, we need more money because more money is going to help everything. And it turns out she's like, no, it wasn't. Well, it passed by, I forgot the, the margin, but it passed. So... Three or four years later, almost, I have no clue where that money's at. I still see people homeless, tents all over the place. I was just driving down um, Geary Street today to go to, to, to Divisadero. There's tents in the middle of the, 
center walk with there's a guy with a barbecue in the middle smoking everything it's like I have no clue where all that money went so this this brings up another thing if you kind of transition into the homeless Mm -hmm. umbrella here is we like to lump when we say homeless we lump everything into that one umbrella you know Homeless people, the, the 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 drug addiction, the mentally ill, the human traffic victims, domestic violence victims, people who legitimately have jobs but they can't afford to live anywhere in the city. Like we lump them all in the same umbrella of homeless, but really, to solve it, there's so many different ways. You can't solve it by helping this per person here one way and then try to help that person with the same way. It do, it does it doesn't work. It's like if you're somebody that gets kicked out because your landlord raised the rent twenty percent, you're like, I my job's here, I can't live anywhere, so I'm living in my car my rv but i'm working and i can't afford it for to pay for it. it's like we seem to do a good job of providing those people with, with the resources to say let's get you some help we got some assistive housing here we're going to help you get into a program to get you a better living uh, a, a situation and people are like that they want to like thank you so much i appreciate the help and this is all i needed because i don't want to leave san francisco i was born raised here i work here whatnot so thank you so much and then on the other side of the, of the, of the spectrum you may, may have people who enjoy being homeless or they're like, I don't want to help them to nobody. I'm happy sitting on the corner here because I get, you know, handouts, I get free money from, from the government. And, you know, if I need to go to a shelter, I'll go overnight and I'll come right back to where I'm at. But then how do we really solve that problem when people don't want the help? And that's where we get into the whole enforcement side of it. But what's your take on this whole big pool of money that we have to solve homeless? And how's the politics behind the scenes of how trying to fix this is actually working because most of the voters like like me would be like unless you do do the research you have no clue you just know that we're spending so much money in taxes to fight the homeless problem yet it seems to be getting worse in certain points what's your take on that yeah i think it's very important to understand the different categories of homelessness right because uh, as you mentioned you know there's a certain percentage of people who are who have severe mental illness people with severe drug addiction some who have both people who are just down and out on their luck people who are you know, homeless veterans or like a single mom, you know, people who lost their job. There's so many different uh, categories of homelessness. So we need to kind of understand what we're dealing with and then prescribe things for each one. Uh, you know, one, one medicine or one pro- program is not going to, one size won't fit all, right? We need to really kind of laser focus and what, what's, what's going to move the needle in, in one area versus another. And I think an underlying all of that is the importance of housing. Ultimately, people need a safe place to 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 sleep, to live, right? People need a home, right? You know, so I think uh, that we need to build housing if we're going to address homelessness. They just go together, but uh, it doesn't mean each house that we build it has to be the same type of house, right? It's like I think people living in a tent is not sustainable. It's not. It's not healthy for the person living in the tent or for the person who have, having to walk down the sidewalk, right? It's just, it's not tenable. So, uh, but there are concepts like tiny homes. Like you look at other cities like Austin, which have created these, these uh, places where, you know, it's just a small, you know, with a locking door, you know, you have your privacy and you're safe, but it's just a very simple bed, but it's a, it's a home, it's a tiny home. And then there's a communal bath and, and there's wraparound services and, and uh, you know, to live in the tiny home, you, you kind of, everyone contributes to like cleaning the communal bath or whatever it is, it's a community, right? So uh, there's, really, there's innovative ways that we can address this and look at other places that have done things and apply them here. Um, and there's also the, uh, you know, the mental illness issue, I think is something that we have ignored for far too long uh, to our detriment because uh, there's, you know, it's, there's, it's, 
we can't ignore the fact that a large percentage of homeless people in San Francisco do have severe mental illness. And there's a big distinction between the Democrats who are the moderates and the Democrats who are progressives and how to deal with that situation. And the moderates tend to lead the effort to, to strengthen what's called conservatorship laws, which is if you're severely mentally ill and you're a danger to yourself and others, that the conservatorship law then compels you to get treatment, right? And the progressives uh, tend to be opposed to strengthen conservatorship laws. Now, from my view, if someone is having psychotic episode on the street and they're suffering and dying on the street and we're just saying, well, we're not going to compel to treat you and give you the medicine you need, to me, that's not humane. How is that humane? The person is now just going to flail and suffer on the street and not get the medicine they need. I think it is humane in those cases to give the people the medicine that will make them feel better. Right. And so, uh, but this is a clear distinction between the progressives and moderates who are Democrats in San Francisco. Um, there's one supervisor, Raphael Mandelman, and he has an amazing backstory in that he grew up uh, and his mother had severe mental illness. And fortunately, she passed away and, 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 was, and, and he, and as a teenager, uh, was kind of the, the kindness of his teachers took him in and kind of raised him the final years of his teenage years. And, and he went on to go to Harvard and, be, and become a lawyer. And now he's a su city supervisor. Um, and, he, and he's a very liberal Democrat, but he will tell you, and he does, and he's done a lot of media interviews about his own situation and says, we need stronger conservatorship laws because like people like my mother, they, they cannot take care of themselves and they're just going to suffer and die on the street unless we give them the medicine they need. And so he's a strong proponent for that. Uh, but other progressive Democrats are fight that. And, and, and so what happened was um, Scott Wiener, who's kind of a famous politician, when he moved on to the state Senate, he pa helped pass a state law to allow counties to uh, strengthen their conservatorship uh, programs. So each county would have to opt into it, right? And so he, Scott Wiener did that at the state. But at San Francisco, we dragged our feet and, and the progressive said, no, 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 we don't want to opt into that. We, no, we can't, we can't. And then when they finally did adopt it, they, they amended it so much that, uh, and the Chronicles reported on this, that uh, the program is so watered down that we've only helped two people. <laughs> That's... Two. We need to help two thousand people, right? And so, it, it, so, it, 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 so if you believe that conservatorship laws are the way to go, then you need to elect new supervisors. You need to elect supervisors more like Raphael Mandelman or Scott Weiner, or on that moderate band of the shade of blue, who would be willing then to not water down the law and and actually help the number of people who need to help. I think this is just my personal opinion here to actually solve everything that we want to solve in San Francisco. I mean, there's a, let's just be real. There's a, there's a reason why these things haven't been solved for so long. I mean, politics definitely play a part of it, but it's the reality is in my opinion, if we're going to solve anything, it's going to take a long time. Like we, we can start the wheels going now, but it may take 10 years or so to fix a homelessness problem. And I know that that's a hard thing for politicians to actually say, elect me because I'm going to solve this. But it's going to but if I'm being honest with you, even if I get everything right, it's going to take probably 10 years because voters don't want to hear that because of the next guy comes and says he's wrong. I can do that in two years. That's going to sell. Oh, good. You're going to do it faster. But then. But think about if 10 years ago we had the political will to actually start the process needed, we'd be in so much better place right now. It's, we, yes, there's a saying. I love I don't know the, the genesis of the saying, but it's one of my favorite sayings. It, it is when is the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago? Because you're going to have this beautiful tree. 
mm-hmm. when's the second best time to plant a tree today right because the the more you wait then you're not going to get that beautiful tree right you got to start today and then for the next 20 years and, and, and you also have to think think ahead think to the future and not only worry about our ourselves right like mm-hmm. what's drawn me to public service is that um, I'm actually interested in doing things today that I may not live to see, but then I know that it's going to benefit the next generation and the generation after that. Think about the people who were planning the BART system in the 1960s, right? <laughs> Many of them are probably not alive today, have passed on, but you know, thank you for thinking ahead and planning that BART system. But man, what if they would have planned it better? You know, and it went down Geary Avenue and it went down 19th Avenue and it went to Marin County. Like how much better we would be today if people had the political will to build out BART the way it should have been. Right. They kind of did it kind of half baked. Right. Like it's great, but it worked for that day. Like today it works great. 40 years from now is their problem. Exactly. And I think, you know, I think like like anything they they, it it was something new and it faced a lot of resistance. And so they built whatever they could get done. But there wasn't a political will or the ability to really make it the way it should have been. Right. It's Mm -hmm. like the central subway that we're building, uh, which has become kind of a boondoggle. Talk about financial (laughs) mess. But the point is, it's still important to build that subway. But they only built it to Chinatown and it doesn't go to North Beach or Fisherman's Wharf. It doesn't go the whole distance, right? So, like, why don't we just, why can't we build stuff the way it's supposed to be built the first time out, and then we don't have to worry about having to fix it later? By the way, what was the reason behind that? Money or, eh, they'll figure it out later. We made it so that if they wanted to extend it 50 years down the line, they, they could do right. it right now. We can't it's afford it. It's short-sightedness. It's, 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 in the, it's like, what can we get past now of the politics of today and the money of today, what's palatable today, is that the voter will say, okay, go ahead and do that. And then they cut the corner so much to make it look more palatable. But then at the end of the day, it doesn't really do what it should do. And then no one wins in the end, right? Because then everyone complains when it's done. They're like, well, how come it doesn't do this? Well, you know, so I think there needs to be more boldness of leadership in San Francisco, a, a, you know, a vision that says to folks, this is where we need to be. This is where the puck is going. The analogy, don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck is going. You know, the great right. ho- hockey great Wayne Gretzky said that. It's, the idea is this is where we need to be and let's, let's head there. That's the dream. That's the goal. Let's go there because, right, if we don't start planting trees today, yeah. we're never going to have them, right? I want to tell you a story about, about conservatorship from what I do for a living in law enforcement. But before that, I wanted to ask, because this is a good thing you brought up here, we talk about short-sightedness with a lot of politicians, not just here, it's everywhere. San Francisco has become a place where you can start as supervisor in a right area. If you become mayor, that's a pathway to lieutenant governor, to governor, to potentially the White House. Are we seeing a lot of, you know, I don't know what Gavin Newsom's uh, future is. I mean, there's a lot of talk. Is he just trying to be president? Is that why he's doing what everything he's doing? I don't know. But it, it does kind of lean towards the thing. Are you just doing everything you, you can to fix it right now so I can go on at the top of my, of my career and then it's their problem to fix it? Or do you think we, that we can, that there's politicians out there in the city who are like, I just want to do the best for San Francisco. I don't care about getting governor. I don't care about being president. I don't care about all that. So I just want to do the best for my, 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 my city while I'm here. People are going to love me. People are going to hate me. They're going to say I'm taking too long, but I know I'm doing what's right for the city I live in. Do we have people like that in the pipeline that are that just want to focus on the city instead of thinking too far ahead down the line? Because then you're thinking now, what's going to get me there when really you should be thinking about here first? That whole thing, let it happen. It's like money is being a result of how good you do your job at. That'll come. But if you just focus on what you have now, like that because the way that you talk, 
I don't know what's going on in your mind, but I think you're somebody that really wants to do good for the city because you live here, you have a life here, this is important to you, and you know, if anything happens in your political future beyond that that's higher up there, then okay, great, but really I'm just focused on now. But is there anybody else in the pipeline that you see that if you're a San Francisco voter, you could say that's somebody I should be looking at? Well, I would think Scott Wiener is a great example because now he's advanced. He started as a supervisor and now he's a state senator, so he moved up the ladder, so to speak. But, but you know, when he was in, in the first position, you know, he was rolling his sleeves up and I've never seen anyone, any legislator work as hard as, as he does, right, on, on intractable, like really impossible issues and unpopular and taking in, incoming fire all the time. Everyone's angry at him and attacking him, but he, <laughs> but he knows like I'm doing this because it's good for the city and it's good medicine, right? And, and we, we need to get it done. We need to do it, you know? And, and he was still able to get reelected. Like he did, took unpopular stands and then got reelected and then advanced to higher office. So I see that as a good example of someone who puts their nose to the grindstone and, and does the hard work. And then when an opportunity arises, they run for the next office and then they're elected based on what they've actually accomplished. So I think that's a good example of a politician that, that advances. You know, like ultimately you want people with experience to advance, right, when, mm -hmm. when necessary. So it's not like you only want to elect people who, are, who will never run for any other office again. Um, but you also want to be mindful of the people who they're only looking to the next office because, and a, and a good sign of that is, uh, they will be busybodies in just creating and passing laws that just look good in the moment. And then we reap the consequence of that because when that person, uh, you know, passes, you know, 50 laws or whatever it is, you know, and they're very short-sighted in the moment laws, right? And then they move on and leave and then we're stuck with all this legislation that might be outdated or not serving its purpose. It wasn't well thought out, you know? So sometimes politicians, when they're on the campaign trail, they promise, they say, I'm going to pass this law. I'm going to do this, this law. Uh, sometimes I would love to see a politician say, I'm going to undo this law and undo that law. We don't need so many laws, right? <laughs> we, <laughs> we have too many inefficiencies in bureaucracy. Let's try to like streamline things. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. I want to get back to the conservatorship thing that mm -hmm. we talked about. So I told you where I work at, San Mateo, Mateo County as a law enforcement officer. We've had several times in the city that I work in where we've come across people that have had challenges. They cannot take care of them themselves. They um, are di disrupting their their neighbors. They walk out into the, into the street, causing you know danger to them, 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 them themselves. And we have to act upon that. But you know, and, and as you've seen seen here too, the system is pretty much set up where, as a law enforcement officer, you can place someone on a, on, a, on a hold, and then they go down to the county hospital where they get treatment and services. Because that system gets so back backed up, sometimes the doctors there are like. Right now you're you're fine. Okay, you're good to go. I have somebody else who you know maybe cut their wrist or did something more uh, egregious that I need to take care of now, and then so the cycle sort of re repeats itself. So we we found ourselves at a position where we have somebody who needs help. They need assistance. What we're doing right now isn't enough. How can we make things better? And we partner with different agencies within our county. We have, we have a specialist with, with within our department that makes all the connections. And the response was, hey, we can help, but we're going to need more documentation. We need more. Uh, we need more that we can go to our core system and say, this person is in need of a conservatorship. Look at all this stuff here. So we've had to take the time and the patience to actually document all the incidences in the context that, we, that we've had with, with somebody, including the, the neighbors and what they've actually seen. Put together a big, big package so that finally the estate can say, all right, that's a long history here, well documented. 
we're going to step in. We're going to do what we have to do. There was one lady that we helped for so long, and then all of a sudden she wasn't in town anymore. We thought, okay, well, I hope she's okay. One day somebody pull, pull, pulls over and wave, waves to me. Hey, Officer Acosta talks to me. I'm like, do I know you? And then she told me her name. I'm like, wow, I haven't seen you since you know three or four years ago. She's like, I want to thank you so much because you guys, as much as I was a pain for doing A, B, and C, you really were the catalyst to get me my life on track because if it wasn't for you guys, I would have just gone through the cycle. I would have gone back to the drugs. I would have done A, B, and C because who was going to stop me? But you guys held your, your ground. You guys did the documentation. Because of that, now I can have a life with my uh, son who was, was so young. He was going to like you know middle, middle school, and he has to see his mother going through all this. So to be able to see that, that story, was, it was a good feel-good, a good story. Not something you're going to see in the media because it's not like we go post, hey, you know, Jane Doe did, did this. It's just like we're happy that, that she got the help that she needed and it's one good thing to happen. But in order to make it happen, if you saw that document, it was so long before, before the state said, okay, that's enough for us to actually go into it. But like what we're dealing with here in San Francisco, some of these people, it's like one or two off times. And, you know, is the system designed to put people into conservatorship with just a little bit amount of, you know, contacts? A lot of times me and my wife will walk around. Cal Hollow, Fillmore, Polk Street's good. You know, that's known for that. You're walking down, you're reading on the parklet now especially, and then somebody walks down the street and they're shouting to them, them themselves. They're, you know, they look like they're in a mental health crisis. But then I, and my wife would be like, how come the cops don't do anything about it? And I'm, I got to tell her, it's like, well, let's look about this. Yes, he's, you know, he's yelling at, he's yelling at people. He's walking on the sidewalk. I have to put the mindset on, is he a danger to himself or others right now? Is he in the street? No, he's on the sidewalk. Is he jumping in front of cars? No, he's not. Does he have a weapon or anything? No, he doesn't. He's just walking down the street, shouting to himself. And I'm like, unless I have more, it's like there's no law against just walking mm -hmm. down the street, shouting and talking to people that you think are around you. I'm like, there's nothing that most officers can actually do for that. We can go try and assist and say, hey, can I, especially if you know the person because you always deal with them, hey, John. Now, who's talking to you today? So-and-so, okay, can I get, get you home? Can I get you a ride home? Can I call your sister, whatever, and then try to work that way to at least um, get him some immediate help. But I'm like, that's so much, much time and involvement. And it's just, it's sad because there's not enough people on the street to actually do that. And, you know. That's key, what you say, right? And it asks a lot of law enforcement to take that role, right? Like maybe you, maybe you, you shouldn't have to be expected to be a social worker on the street. Maybe we actually need more social workers to in that situation was not a dangerous situation that can help intervene and and get the direct the person to where they need help. But the other thing we have to talk about is um, what are we how how are we investing in mental health services? We're not right. And mm -hmm. and and you know one thing that kind of rankled me was uh, years ago uh, San Francisco General Hospital renamed itself like the Zuckerberg Hospital. Like Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook got, got his name on the hospital, and, yeah. and, and to get those naming rights, like you you strike a deal. Like he's got to write a check, right? You Pretty know, much. that's how you get your name on a building. But you know, and at the time, the mental health beds um, at San Francisco General had been dwindling and dwindling and, and cut in half. And, and if, if I was in charge, I would have said, all right, if you want to put your name on this hospital, then give us enough money to triple, quadruple the number of mental health beds, right? It, it's such an important priority, right? So I think that was a missed opportunity. I think it's wherever we can, find the way to fund more mental health services, we need to do it because it's so fundamental to a lot of the issues we're talking about because mm -hmm. uh, we just have not, as a society, addressed it or focused on it or cared about it as enough as we should. And when you ignore that, 
then we reap horrible consequences because um, mm -hmm. too many people are just suffering on the street because of that who wouldn't be there otherwise if they had good mental health care. So I think yeah. that's very important. And the other important thing to say on that issue is our jails have become de facto mental institutions, which is tor horrible and torturous. Someone who's suffering from mental illness should not be locked up in jail. They need help, right? They need treatment. But sometimes... And when we don't have the hospital beds for them, we don't have the transitional housing, they end up in a jail cell. And this happens all over America, and this is terrible, right? So I think it's important that uh, we find ways to treat people with, with, in the ways they really need. And the last thing I'll say on that is in San Francisco, we have a good thing called the Behavioral Health Court. And this is where if you're having psychosis on the street and then you end up becoming dangerous to someone and say you actually strike someone or hurt someone or attack someone in your psychosis, now you've just caused, you've created, a, you know, you've committed a felony. You've actually created bodily harm. So now you're in the criminal justice system. You go before a judge. The behavioral health court says, okay, in lieu of jail for this crime you've committed, you will uh, commit yourself to compelled treatment. And then the person gets the treatment they need versus wasting away in a jail cell. And everyone wins in the end, right? Mm -hmm. Problem with behavioral health court is that before the person can get the compelled treatment, they have to hurt somebody else. It would be so much better if we could intervene before a third party gets hurt and that person can get the help and medicine they need. And that's why we need stronger conservatorship laws mm -hmm. so we can intervene earlier. Well, there's, there's a couple of things with that that I, that I heard about. First of all, on the law enforcement side of it, uh, I think a lot, well, because of, you know, media or whatnot, we, we, we've seen instances where um, it's made front page news. Somebody going through a mental health crisis, the, the law enforcement gets involved, something happens, and unfortunately, somebody is no longer with us. And it's caused a lot of departments to really reevaluate how do we handle this because we want to get somebody the help that they need, but there's only so much that we can actually do. If somebody's within their four walls and they're like, I'm going to kill my, myself, and they got a knife to their throat, we're like, is there anybody else in the house? No, it's them by, the, by themselves. There was a time where you would just go in and get him the help that he needs. Now it's like, well, there's nobody in the house. You know, I want to help the guy, but it's like, you know, there's so many things that we have to think about now because of what's been happening out there in the world. You try to help somebody and it goes wrong. Then it's like, you know, people point the finger at one side over the other. And it's like, you know, it, it makes it hard for a lot of law enforcement officers to do their, their job because you want to help somebody. You know, it's the right thing to do. But if that go, goes south or they're they're high on fentanyl or whatever, and that one contact that you have with them, they have a heart attack or a stroke and they die. It's like you. And it's like, right. you That's know, a lot. It's definitely. Yeah. And then going back to the mental health workers, too. This is the problem that I've always seen with it is that. It sounds great, but you know, who's going to want to do that, that that job? And are we going to pay them what they probably need to actually have in order to do right, that that job? Right. And then on top of that, it's, it's you could talk to somebody who's maybe talking to their voices in, in their in their in their head. But a lot of the training that we've seen is that you don't know if they're going to snap. You don't know if they're going to see that new mental health worker as a threat and then go and attack them. So then it's do you want unarmed mental health workers? I know engaging with that, which is why we always turn back to law enforcement because at least they're they're trained in different various ways to handle that should that happen. But then if you're going to send mental health with law enforcement, you still have the issue of staffing because then you need to put a law enforcement officer over there. So it's you know I, I have no idea if it's what's about to be talked about in terms of handling those specific issues in terms of who you're going to get to do the job as mental health counselors. What are you going to pay them? Because if you don't pay them enough, they're not going to want like, why would I do that when I can go work for Google to make $200,000 a year and sit behind right. a computer all day? It's, 
And then is the city or the government willing to pay that to do it? And it kind of goes back into investing in law enforcement. I'll let you speak upon yeah. that. Well, I think there needs to be some hybrid solution because the latest stats that I saw where the SFPD released, you know, what, what it go, what it, uh, the calls it responds to. It was something, you know, like 10,000 calls uh, for mental health disturbances or distress, right? That's a lot of time that an officer has to be dispatched out to a mental health crisis that, you know, and they're not, then, then they're, now they're not on the beat or they're not trying to solve serious or violent crime, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have the problem of the, um, you know, crime, like really terrible crimes, you know, like rape or assault or whatnot, the, the, the clearance rate is, is low because there's not enough staffing or people are distracted. They're out doing these other calls, right? And they're not focused. Uh, and so then you had this whole debate about funding, right? Should we divert funds, uh, you know, or, or should police officers go on mental health calls or not, you know, and, and, and then save, use that, you know, focus the police on one thing and invest in, in the mental health calls with social workers, right? So that all sounds great on paper, but as you said, how do you deal with the issue of, of an, if uh, social workers could be attacked if someone is in psychosis? So I think there needs to be a hybrid solution, not like not all or nothing, right? You know, because we need to, uh, right now, the San Francisco Police Department is short-staffed. You know, people don't talk about that much, and it's and when you say it, people will kind of look at you cross-eyed because we're in a yeah. we're in a mode where it's like we need less police, less police. Um, but San Francisco is down about 400 officers, you know, just to be, so, so, you know, and right now the mayor is trying to get extra budgeting for overtime and it's not even hiring new cops. It's like, whoever's still there, like we need, they need to work more just to cover the basics and we got to pay them overtime. So, and and she's having a fight right now to even get that money to pay the overtime. So it's a, it's a tough situation. Uh, and it's kind of a vicious circle or vicious cycle. I don't know how the, how the, the saying goes, but the idea is that um, the police are looked upon by many as being ineffectual because they, they say, we've thrown a lot of money at them over the years and look at the, right, their arrest rate is low, the clearance rate is low. But then as a society, we expect police to go do everything. And we've never invested in mental health. You know, we don't invest in social workers and we send cops to do it. And then they're running out 10,000 calls to deal with that when they're not dealing with the violent crime. And then people say, look, you're ineffectual. This, like, it just, it's a vicious cycle. So we, someone needs to stop it and say, look, let's sort this out, right? Let's, you know, cops aren't the only problem, right? They're, 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 they are a, an important part of the, of the solution, right? And let's figure out what part they need to be and let's fund them where they need to be and, and let them focus on that. And then let's look at other areas that, that have been neglected for years and fund that so we can actually maybe stop some of this behavior or, or intervene early enough before it gets to the point that a cop needs to be involved, right? We, we got to look at things holistically, right? We, we need to like, and, and, and it's, Again, some people want to only do one or only do the other. We need to do them in parallel. We need to do things that is going to, uh, you know, uh, uh, stop the cycle of crime in the first place, right? By having, and this is the planting the tree that's going to take 20 years, but yes. we need to start doing it, which is investing in education and jobs and, and you know, all the things that, that people need to thrive as human beings so they don't turn to crime, right? We need to mm-hmm. invest in that. 
And we can't just throw cops like over the cliff either. They are needed for certain things too. So we need to do both. To me, I would be so ecstatic if any, politi- to, to, uh, any politician would actually take the time to just go through a Citizens Academy. A couple weeks, if they went through the whole academy, that would be very impressive. Because, I, you know, you have a better understanding of like, what law enforcement go, goes through than I think a lot of politicians out there do. Just because, I get it, you have a lot on your plate, you're trying mm-hmm. to juggle multiple things. But because it's such a hot button issue, to be able to put yourself in the shoes of what they see every day... You know, it makes a big difference because you can get a broader sense of this is what people, this is what officers, men and women, this is what they deal with every day. You know, it, I, where, whereas I don't see it as much where I work at, there are people here where every time you walk down the street, you're getting the middle finger. People are throwing things at you. And then you're going to call to call to call. And then you're seeing, you know, horrific things that people do to their children or that they do to other people. And you see limbs missing. You know, it's, it's a lot that people that these officers deal with every day. And it, it kind of it, it affects them when they feel like a lot of the politicians don't see that. But however, just going through like like an academy or like a use of force scenario training to see these are the split the split second decisions that we're asking these officers to make, I think just makes a ton of difference because it helps put you in the perspective of this is what we're thinking of. I think a challenge here, in addition, we go back to housing is like it's so expensive to expensive to to live here that if you're somebody who wants to do your public service within San Francisco because you grew up here, it's like. Why would I do that job for X amount of money when I can go to Google, like I said, and do it for mm-hmm. double the money and not have to worry about getting shot or have to worry about people spitting on me? It's like, why would I do that? And I think you're seeing a lot of the younger generation in the city saying exactly that. Or and plus what they hear in the media now about, oh, this is how law enforcement looks. And they're like, why would I want to do that? You know, everybody in my family hates that. So I'm going to go over here where it's safer, which is a big challenge to getting people to want to join up in the ranks, especially people who live in the city. I was talking to some of the officers here and they were telling me they've seen a lot of people who come from out of state to be law enforcement officers over, over here because they, they see the dollar signs. Mm. Then when you factor in cost of living, you're like, actually, it's not as much as you think, considering how much you got to pay for housing. And we have somebody who's doing a great, great job, but they may not have the roots in San Francisco because they weren't born, born here. I know you mentioned that on your platform about we mean we need more people who are actually from the city because they know they were born and raised here. There's that sense of especially the officers that I know who were born and raised here. There's that sense of community that they feel they want to give back. It means more to them when they work in the neighborhoods that they actually grew up in because they know the people who work on the corner. They, they know the people who in the liquor stores and the grocery stores. So when you walk in there, they're like, I remember you when you were 12 years old and now you're, thank you so much. And then there's that extra sense of commitment that they actually have. So, but it's like in order for us to get to that point where, we, where you could have enough officers to walk the beats every day, plus manage what the patrol has to do and all the special units, it's like you need... <laughs> so many more officers you need to invest you need, you need to invest to, you need to invest and and here's the thing about the san francisco police department it has done some horrible things in the past let's be honest right like if you go back uh i mean at any point in history i mean you know you go back in the 1970s uh, you know when harvey milk the first gay supervisor was elected and then assassinated um you know that was a time when uh the police force was almost was entirely men and and almost entirely white men and um, there was a mayor at the time who was elected, Mayor Moscone, who was also assassinated. But he hired a very liberal police chief who said, I'm going to, for the first time, I'm going to hire women. I'm going to hire gays as police officers. And, he, and the police chief said, you know what? And what else I'm going to do? I want to make the officers look friendlier. And I'm going to repaint all the patrol cars powder blue. So it's just a friendly light blue. Now, can you imagine the force is like all men 
probably homophobic because the 70s is a time when all the gays are moving into the Castro, right? And the connotation of driving around town in a powder blue cop car. They, they were not happy. They were not having it, right? The police union pr protested any suggestion that an openly gay cop could ever serve. I mean, they're publicly saying this, like, never, ever gay cops in SFPD. So like, this was like, this is the climate. So that's only like 45 years ago. So that's in the living memory of some people, right? So yeah. <laughs> that's why some people are, when you say SFPD, people are like, oh, right? They remember that, right? And then, you know, after Harvey Milk was shot, uh, the jury let off the assassin with manslaughter, right? And so then gay people rioted at City Hall and they torched a bunch of cop cars. And then a few days later, the cops came and went to the gay bars in Castro and started cracking some skulls, right? And so people remember that, right? So, I, so the SFPD has done some bad things, right? And then ultimately, the federal government had to come in and say, and take over the entire hiring practice and say, and for 20 years, SFPD didn't control their own hiring because they, need, they were all white men. So ultimately, uh, it worked. To, but today, SFPD is majority non-white. And it has about 15% women. So it's come a long way. So the thing is, people with living memory of the bad SFPD, right, are still living here, uh, I, I probably need to appreciate that it's not the same SFPD as it was, right? We have Chief Bill Scott, black man, who is from Alabama. Uh, he's considered one of the most uh, reform-minded police chiefs in America. And he's here at the SFPD. And just, just this week, California Department of Justice released a report to say, how is SFPD doing on its reforms? Glowing report saying they're doing fantastic. They're at 90% of what their goals are. They're really doing great. So that's part of the narrative that needs to be said as well. Now, also in the news was that the police department was apparently using DNA from the rape victims and, and putting it into a database and then using it if they committed a crime down the line. Like, like that's a terrible thing and the police chief has said that's horrible and that's going to stop and we're going to investigate right so right it's it's not all or nothing like there it we need to acknowledge when the police department is doing good stuff and then make sure and it's held accountable when it's doing bad stuff but i would argue that the bad stuff is much lower today than it was 30 40 50 even 10 years ago and it's doing a lot uh, the good stuff is a much higher based on that department of justice report so you got to look at things in context. It's one of those things that the the industry is really, you know, the incident with George George Floyd really put everybody in that situation where we look at it over here because we have such high standards of training in the the state. California, believe it or not, is regarded as one of the best, um, highest ranking in terms of police training within the entire country. Other states say if you have your certification from California, we don't even need you to go through our academy because you, we know you've done so much more there. You're held to a higher standard here. And then it's uh, it when we, we see things like what happened in, in, in Minnesota, it's just it's horrible because nobody here would ever would ever do that. So when you see something that happens over there and, you know, I can't speak to what goes on because I've never been there. I have, I have no, no clue. You just trust that the justice system does what it has to do over there. But to lump everybody in, because it's about 800,000 sworn law enforcement officers in the entire country. When you lump them all and say you're all that person there, it makes it hard because, you know, just because you may dress a certain way or whatnot, we're kind of doing, you know, we're using the law enforcement example, but we say the same thing with, you know, people who go in the store and people say, you're judging me because of this. It's like the same thing with the badge. If you, 
if you lump everybody into that and say, uh-huh, you're one of those people or whatever, then it makes it hard to do what to do to, to, to do our job, which is where a lot of times you need the backing of like politicians to say, look at what happened there. A tragedy. We don't wish that upon anybody here, you know, but we have to focus on what we have here. And uh, we believe and we trust in our teams. We trust in our hiring process. We, we trust in our management to make sure we get things done, done right. And uh, because of that, we hold them accountable. They are able to produce a staff of workers here and officers who are out there doing their job the best that they can. And we have to make sure that they get the training that they actually need, which is another issue because it goes back down to staffing. If you don't have staffing, you have to worry about filling the streets. You don't have time to train as much as you like, which comes back down to you have to fund, you have to invest in order to be able to get the training, which lowers everything else down there. And it's something that I think a lot of people here or a lot of uh, voters here, when you when you only hear one side from one political side, and then and unfortunately it kind of makes you think this is what everybody does over there. And it really isn't. So many great people who work here in the police department, public works, fire department as well, and everywhere within the, uh, the city. And it's good to hear that, you know, to get their voice out there that they actually need need to hear because they're under so much pressure, not only for, for their for their job, but just to make ends meet because of how expensive it is to live in San Francisco. That's right. But we but but you know, a, a police officer, a police department, they have to be held to a higher standard because they are they have a license to, you know, to to kill. They're Absolutely. carrying a lethal weapon, right? So mm-hmm. they they have to be held at a higher standard because, you know, one mistake could have Absolutely. Irreversible consequence. Right. So so that's important. And, you know, and I talked about how, you know, in the 1970s, the police department was doing bad stuff. But, you know, there was a culture because back in the day, the police department was a police family. Like the only people who got jobs were like the sons, the brothers, the nephews. Right. And and so if 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 you've created a culture and you only hire people from within that culture, it can get you know, it can sometimes can go haywire, right? And so there can be, an, or there was a, a negative culture that needed to be changed and, and cleared up. And, and by doing that is by bringing in new people, new right, people who have from different points of view, like, so it's a more diverse, diversity is good because you don't want a monoculture that only does one thing because then things can get bastardized or, 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 or go in a wrong direction, right? So I think what you're seeing, in, and even up until, Seven eight years ago, you know, uh, you know, there were the cases like Mario Woods, and there's a couple others where, you know, a mentally ill person was shot and killed, you know, by police officers. You know that, you know, maybe that could have been prevented. So, but we, thankfully, we haven't seen that happen as much recently. So I, I feel like, you know, a, a large generation of officers have retired, a new generations come in. We have a police chief like Bill Scott, who is very reform-minded, right? So I think the police department is on the right tra- trajectory, and it should be acknowledged as such. It doesn't mm-hmm. need to be demonized as the police department of the 1970s or the 1990s or whatever it is. It should be judged on the police department of 2022 and what it's done and where it's going. And, uh, and I think, again, the context is important. Exactly. You're, right. you're absolutely right about the whole context, the bigger picture there, there too. And like you were saying, it comes to invest it comes to investing it. If we invest in our departments and our city work workers and whatnot, you may not see the results in five months, six months or a year. But over time, you hold to that, that ground there. You develop a culture of trust. You develop a culture of belief in the training philosophies and accountability. You, you build up all that. Now you get people who want to join that. They want to say, I want to be a, be a part of that. I want to do good for my uh, city because I see that they're taking care of everybody. And, you know, when the when the chips are down and then somebody wants to point the finger quickly one side or the other, it's be able to say, hold on, let's work together, talk about this, 
you know, away from all the political rhetoric and what everybody wants us to actually say and say, you know what, we're going to work on this together and fix it together. And, you know, I've seen a lot of success with that mind, mindset because when you think of the rank, the, the rank and file, they see that and they're like, okay, they understand us. We're going to do our part. We're going to work to work together to make sure we make the best department possible. So I think you're right on the money with that, with investment and being able to reach across the aisle. You know, I don't think we even talked about how, like, you know, there's that di- dichotomy within the uh, DA of the city and the police chief. Right. Like, r- regardless of what you of what you believe on either side or the other, the fact that that's public, that there's this this clashing right there, it doesn't put anybody in a good position because now that's taken center stage as opposed to, you know, what, what, what are the good things that they're actually doing, doing together. So it'd be interesting to see how that recall looks. What, what is it, in June? In June, that's right. Yeah, that'll be, I mean, this. We had the school board recall this week, which was a blowout. Seventy, about seventy-five percent of voters said, "Let's recall the school board." The district attorney recall will be nothing like that. Uh, if if it passes, it'll be very close. May not pass. Like that, that's going to be a very, very defi- divisive issue and a, a lot of emotions around it. Right, even more so than the, I mean, the schools, the the school board, the incompetence the school board demonstrated was so off the chart. It was just it was impossible to ignore. It was just so clear. There, there, was just, there was almost no defense for what they did. And that's why you saw, I mean, it's very rare. I said there's a million shades of Democratic blue in San Francisco. You know, 75% of people agreed on that, th- that one thing. That's, that's so rare. It never happens that many people agree on one thing in San Francisco. But the school board was so incompetent that everyone agreed. But whereas the district attorney recall is going to be much more complicated right because it's going to be uh, an issue of uh you know people want reform people say you know we need police reform we need prison reform and district attorney chester bodine kind of embodies and stands for that that's what he's all about and others will say yeah we need reform but we also need to make sure everyone is safe or that that violent criminals are prosecuted or that or, or an experienced prosecutor is holding that office. Chester Bodine worked as a district attorney or a, a public defender, mm-hmm. which is a noble cause. We need good public defenders. But, you know, he didn't work as a prosecutor. So those are the arguments people are going to be having about. And I don't think there's anyone or a very small, it'll be it won't be much of the conversation. The, the concept like the national or the Republican and right wing folks all over the country will say, Chesa Bodine is terrible. We need to go back to lock him up, throw away the key, law and order. No, that's not what's happening in San Francisco. I think most San Franciscans don't, do not want to go back to a 1990s style criminal justice system where we just lock everyone, everyone up and throw away the key. I think a majority want to have reform, but they want it to be done with common sense. And they want it to be done in a way where everyone still feels safe because there's still bad people in the world, right? Who mm-hmm. are, no matter what reform or program you give to them, there are still bad people in the world who are going to do bad things, right? And so they need to be, some people uh, do need to have a timeout in jail, right? So I think that's where a majority of the people are at, but it's very confused because, you know, when the chips are down, the side supporting Bodine is going to paint it as if you recall him you're recalling the whole concept of, of reform, right? And I think it's incumbent on the people recalling Bodine to make the case that we actually want reform, but we just think there we need a, a different district attorney to have the eye on the ball when it comes to prosecuting real crime. So I think that, that so it's going to be a much, it's going to be a very, very narrow 
uh, uh, turnout. I mean, rate like it, the the margin is going to be very small between fifty percent and fifty percent plus one, whether he's recalled or not. That's my prediction. That you probably are right on that one, and you're also right about this. You can't be on one side and say everybody lock him up, throw away the key for everything. No, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts. Then again, you can't be on the other side too and say everybody's a victim. Everybody has this deserves eighty five chances. You can't do that either. There really is a happy median, and then to be right. able to toe that line and be able to have that fluidity to say, okay, right now we need to get a little more on the right side. Okay, now we need to get a little more on the left side, and it's always constantly changing because, yeah, if you stick to one side or the other, that's not going to... We, we learned that in the 70s and 80s, probably earlier than that, that sticking too far to the right had its consequences. And if you go too far to the left, we're seeing the, the consequences with that too. I think a good example of the nuance is when it comes to drug use and drug dealing, right? So uh, in the old days, uh, we locked up the drug users, right? And the dealers, but we went after the drug users. I don't think we should lock up drug users today. If you're addicted to drugs, you need treatment, you need help, right? Get off the drugs. But we should prosecute the drug dealers, especially the dealers who are selling death in the name of fentanyl. I mean, we had over 700 deaths uh, last year uh, or the year before and about 650 last year because of fentanyl deaths you know and that's uh, it would have been thousands if not for the narcon that was reviving people who od'd so if a dealer is selling something that's likely going to kill someone maybe they should be prosecuted for manslaughter i mean that that could send a chill through the dealing community right so but the users shouldn't be prosecuted, right? They need uh, treatment. So I think there is a place where we could find some nuance, but right now we're not really even prosecuting the dealers. And I think it's, it's, it's good that we're not prosecuting the users, but now we're, everything is just an open drug market, right? And that's not good for the city. Well, one thing that they don't talk about is during the pandemic, you know, everybody talks about the um, passing on of the people associated with that, but nobody talks about the passing on of the people overdosing it's almost like lumped oh, yeah, into the more, same number. More people died of drug overdoses in San Francisco than of COVID. Yeah, like it, that is that's nobody a talks stark, about that that's one. a stark uh, fact. So it, but but it's and it just goes to show we, we need to pay attention to that crisis on the street. I mean, these are you know these people are human beings. The sons and daughters of people are dying on the streets from this horrible drug overdoses. That this death that's being peddled by these dealers. It, we need to. Go after the dealer and go higher or go to the source. Like we, we really need to uh, not allow open air drug dealing the way that we allow it right now. Yeah. And that's the big challenge with that one is how do you get people to want help when they don't even know that they need help? And I was talking to Tom Wolf on the show a couple of months ago and he's like, you could have thrown everything you, 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 you could at me in terms of, you know, resources and help and whatnot. And I still got back, back into it. It wasn't until in his case, you know, he got arrested and they said, you need to go back to your wife and kids that you need to do this for them that it started to, to click. And he was he's like, you know, Mike, that one time I got arrested, and I went to, to jail and they gave me I forgot the, the drug that it was, but it helped get him off of his high. And I was forced to go into a program because I'm in an environment where I couldn't get my, my drugs. That was the kick in the rear end that I needed to actually get get clean. But he's like, you know, if you didn't if they didn't put me into to jail for that time there. I had no incentive to go and get help because what am I going to do? You know, I have no place to live. I have no money. I have no, you know, he had pretty much just fallen into such a really bad, bad spot that, you know, his own wife said, you know, get out the house because I don't want you here bringing that into in, with our kids and whatnot. 
So for him, it was, I needed that. I needed to, to get arrested because that were for uh, me. And like the example I gave you earlier with the person that we had dealt with was the same thing. We had to get involved to be able to say, all right, I, I get it. It's actually, this is what I need to, to get there. But there are some people where you can say, hey, we have this resource for you. This is place, this, 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 this clinic, come to us. We're going to help you out. And they may take that. But then a lot of people are like, you know, what else do I got going for me? I don't have the one, the motivation. So that is one where how do we find that balance of saying we need to get them all the help that we can. But there's got to be a little bit of a backing to it saying if you don't get the help that you need because you really need it, what can we do to actually enforce that? And I know that that's a, it's, it's a hard conversation for a lot of people to talk about because it goes into the enforcement side. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, where do you tell that line? There's a difference between enforcement as far as let's just throw you in jail and throw away the key and enforcement as in you need to get the help. We have to mandate you to get it. So if it takes you getting the citation for a thousand dollars and going into the court system, then we got to do what we got to got to got to do. I think so right now, but right now we're not really arresting or prosecuting anyone, right? The users or the dealers. So I think in in lieu of since we're prosecuting nobody, let's start with the dealers. Because when, when you talk about users, I don't think there's the political will in San Francisco, or majority of people would would be okay with that right now, right? So I think. If we're doing nothing, let's at least go after the dealers because if, for the users, let's let's provide incentives and options. And again, and and and, I, and when I say options, I think all things should be on the table. Nothing is all or nothing because there should be abstinence programs. There should be the programs that uh, I forget the the term uh, where you're. It actually. Um, oh, I'm blanking on the term. <laughs> That's fine. But it's something where you know you you actually uh, you know. You, you are able to use drugs in the program, right? And the idea is to wean yourself off. But and sometimes people say, no, no, only abstinence works for me, which is great, then we should offer that. But then if the other version works for others, we should offer that too. We should have a menu of options for people, right? For the users and hope that they take one of the options. And in the meantime, let's focus on the dealers because if we can cut off the supply, if you can't buy it from someone, then what are you going to do, right? So versus yeah. like if we just only start arresting users it's just going to look draconian and there won't be a political will for it and, and, and you know so i think it's smart to focus on the dealers first and offer a variety of options for the users to give them help yeah i mean it's it's one of those those things where you know supply and demand if there's demand for it and you get one dealer as much as i would love that there's going to be two people to take its place because they see the money involved and when you have people who grow up in an area where they don't have anything and it's like, hey, you do this, you can make thousands of dollars a week. All you right. got to do is go and sell this. It's like, but oh, imagine well. if we had a district attorney who said, if you deal fentanyl in San Francisco, I'm going to charge you with manslaughter. I mean, that that right. It's like maybe people won't come to San Francisco. Like you need that kind of leadership to send out the word. Right. I'm sure there's places uh, where dealers shy away from. Right, because maybe the consequences are too great to to deal there. I don't know, but make, it's it's one of those. Are we pushing the problem to somebody else? Like, do we push it to the East Bay, and then now it's Oakland and Alameda's problem, and now they're like, well, why did you? And then you get this whole thing within the the DA's offices. They're going like like that, and then you ask for like help from the federal the federal government, and it's like, okay. So if we help California, then now they're going to go to Nevada, and now it's like then we it's like, and then trying to stop it at the border, it's like you know. It's no matter, it's, you know, and I, I haven't talked to anybody who works in those, those organizations, but it's like, man, trying to get on top of that is like, you know, every time we, we make right. this greater well, these, these problems, right, they, they escalate. Like, it's not just local, it's regional. It, then it's state, then it's federal. Like, you need to have a, uh, a, but then it also comes to this point we talked about earlier is 
We also need to look at what are the foundational reasons people are using drugs in the first place. Mm -hmm. Often people self-medicate on drugs or people use drugs for all kinds of reasons, right? So we need to, in a parallel track, be investigating, investing in ways to stop people from using drugs in the first place or intervening in a sense of giving people a sense of uh, purpose or, uh, you know, whatever it is that, that they, whatever demons are trying to excise through those drugs we need as a society to look at the originating demons what are, and slay those, right, as a society, right? right? So there's so much we need to investigate and invest in, uh, you know, before the problems surface. Yeah, so that, that's a really good, good, good point because, you know, most of the drug users out there are men. And a lot of times when you talk to them about what, what's going on, you hear the, the same sort of story. I don't have anything. I'm not good at anything. It was all taken away. Whatever this, the story is, it's usually a sense of I don't have a purpose. The world's not going to miss me if I were to go away. Uh, this is not, it doesn't surprise me when you go to states like West Virginia or even in the Rust Belt where jobs with the coal miners and we can get climate change, that's a whole separate thing. No matter what, when, they're, when, they're, when they lose the, the jobs and the careers that they've had for, for so, so long, they're like, what else do I do? I got a wife, kids. Now I can't pay, pay the mortgage and the career that I was born and raised in. That's gone now. What do I do? And then it's no coincidence that you see that the, the drug is just shoots way up over there because what they, they don't, they, they can't do what they felt that they were good at doing, you know, working with their, with their hands, having their own company, whatever it was all sort of taken away from them. How do you solve that problem within each state? It's, you know, I, I don't have the answer on that one. I can just tell you that if there was a way that we can give people a purpose back to say, you are going to be good at something. What do you like to do? Oh, I'd like to do art. What if we, we can help you get in a situation like that? Or you know what? I was really good at you know woodworking, but I don't know how to you know go to a shop. I don't know where I can build furniture at. And it's like this is why so many people who do blue 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 collar jobs, like even the sanitation workers, like you may look at that and think you know who would want to do that, but they love doing their job. It's you know, at first they, they they get paid really well around here. They have a purpose. I know I go, go to work and I'm going to take care of something. Maybe I don't make as much money as a Google exec does, but you know what? I'm happy doing my job. I get fulfilled doing it. Construction workers, same thing. I get fulfilled doing my uh, job. And then you don't see the uh, same rates of depression amongst them that you may see against people who lose their careers and they lost everything they actually had. But then you come down to how do you, you can't really make somebody find the purpose. You can inspire them as much as you, you can, but it's like if I walk down the street now, how do I get that person sitting on the corner now to say, you're good at X, Y, and Y, and Z. Why not go for that? Do you realize that there's services here that can help you get that job placement? And how do you get them to motivate them themselves? Like that, if we could figure out a way to solve that problem, that in of itself is going to solve a lot of the drug problem because it's like, oh, I have a job. I go to work. I have a family. I got something to work for. I don't need those drugs anymore because those just get, they, it's like alcoholism. It's like, it's going to get me to a point where I forget about my problems, but then those problems are still here. But then again, how do you convince them? How do you help people to get the motivation that they need to have a purpose to fix that? Right. We have to start with foundational things. People have to feel like their basic needs are being met. As a society, we need to prioritize education and healthcare. So when you're a child and when you're growing up, you're, you're not uh, wanting for basics, right? So I think that's key, right? So people then have the opportunity, you know, to, to find the spark or joy in their life to pursue. Um, so th these are just large societal problems and, and the priorities as a society that we want to, to create as far as are we going to invest in uh, healthcare and housing and uh, education, these foundational basics, 
you know, if everyone has access to that, then, uh, you know, maybe things will be better off. So, you know, you know so it's, Again, but th this is like, you know, talk to who's going to run for president next, right? Like these yeah. are the big, <laughs> the big issues. I mean, it's because uh, like they've, you're going to put a trillion dollars into the Pentagon or are you going to take away, put half of that into, you know, early childhood education, right? Like, yeah. Or are you going to pay teachers or entry level teachers should make a hundred thousand dollars a year? Yeah. Right? So yeah, that would be, if we could get, get teachers on par with just a really good cost. But it's about priorities, right? And it's yeah. like, what are we going to, uh, what, what do we think as a society is important? Yeah, and yeah. I think the the only pushback that I actually have with the that model there in terms of we need to get people to basic necessities is if uh, you have somebody who's using, and we say, okay, here's a house, you know, here's your grocery allotment, whatever. I would hope, and I think everybody would hope that that would be the motivation for someone to say, you know what, thank but, you so much. But I'm not talking about like an adult. I'm I'm saying, uh, you know, we need to make sure that you know, intervene like in a, provide as a society provide the opportunity and the avenues so people don't turn to drugs in the first place, right? So, you know, nurturing children, zero to three, the most important time of your life, right? Make sure every child from zero to three has a preschool program that they can, or early start or head start, whatever they're called, right? Mm -hmm. There's these programs that uh, are proven to really work, you know? Like we talked about in the very beginning, I mean, I had a single mom who's a house cleaner in Rust Belt, Saginaw, Michigan, and I'm at where I am today because I had really good public education. For whatever reason, Saginaw, Michigan, this kind of you know econo economically depressed town, decided to invest a lot in its element public elementary school, and it really gave me the foundational skills that I still use today. And uh, you know, I wish every city had that to be able to invest in that. You're right. Otherwise, we're seeing a lot of parents turn to private school. Which is another cost onto the to the house, which means more people have to work longer hours. Which means who's take? It's like this big cycle that we're trying to figure out around here when it comes just to cost of living, and where we you know deviate tax dollars and whatnot. But the last thing I wanted wanted to say about when we're going back to people who have you know drug issues, you know they just depend upon 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 drugs. Just from what I I've, I've seen on on my own is like we we can give them all the resources, housing and food and whatnot, allotments. But if they still are like, I don't know what to do with my, myself, now they're just in a house by themselves, and then where do they, 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 they turn to? And that's where the drugs come back into play. So I've just seen on, on my own how that may not be the only way to solve the problem because those peop the people in that situation may still not have the purpose. They're like, what am I doing with myself? We saw a lot of that in the pandemic. People were stuck at home in the mm -hmm. beginning. And like, oh, all the, 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 these issues that I just didn't think about because I was at work, now I'm starting to see, you know, me and my spouse were, were having arguments all the time and now I can't realize the, the kids are getting on my nerves and like, what's going on here? And it's like the problems were usually there, but, you know, we can try to mask it, but we don't solve the root things, but that's an individual problem. It's like, right. I have to be the one to say, I need to get my act together, get myself the education, you know, pick myself up when I'm hit rock, rock bottom because nobody's going to do it for me, but if I need help from the government, like unemployment insurance or um, Cal, um, uh, Medi-Cal or whatnot, mm -hmm. that it's available for me to get me on my feet to the point where I can get out on my own way, which I think is ultimately one of probably the new, Ameri uh, the, the new American dream. Instead of owning a home and having all that, it's like making the best of what I can, giving what I actually have. And, you know, I hear so many inspirational stories from people who they know. I, I talked to a domestic violence victim who, uh, you know, her husband did horrible thing, things to her and she took her kids, she ran out. She put herself through uh, nursing school and then she put herself through real estate school with the help of, of her mother, helping her raise her own child. And then she met her uh, husband, who's a doctor through uh, the, the nursing school pra pra practitioner. Now she owns a successful business because she was able to 
overcome all the 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 these odds here, but it wasn't so much what she was was given for much as much as she said, I need to get this done for my my son. He's the most important thing. I need to do everything for for him. But like if he wasn't around, it's like she even says, would she have had the motivation to do everything? Maybe or maybe not. But again, not a problem either. You, had, you had talked about the uh, the adult drug addict who was given a house and given their food, and now they're sitting alone in the room and and they still have the demons in themselves and, and they don't know what to do and they turn back to the drugs. And you talked about the person in the pandemic who is, they were busy with their work lives and whatnot when they were forced to kind of to quarantine, then all of their marital problems and other problems all came to the surface because they weren't kind of suppressing it or weren't distracted by it. But imagine a society where we normalize uh, mental health treatment, where we normalize like talking to a counselor, talking about your feelings, talking about excising the demons from an early age and having therapy and and counseling and and making it widely available and accessible. We don't have that. We've never had that in America. But imagine a society that did have that and how future generations might be much better off because they it's normalized from a very early age that you talk about your feelings and problems and work them out and see a counselor and, 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 and if it's fully accessible and available, maybe things will be better down the road. So I think we really need as a society to decide that we need to make mental health uh, a priority because it kind of is the underlying, it underpins so many societal problems that we have. And it's like whack-a-mole, you're trying to like, you know, tackle this one and tackle that and tackle this and they keep popping up and popping up but what's under it all mm-hmm. we have a whole society of 300 million americans who have who have not really dealt well with their own mental health and i'm not just talking about the psychotic person on the street i'm just talking about a regular person who just has has to figure out their own interpersonal problems and feelings and how they interact with other human beings right and how they deal with their own internal issues like it's everyone needs to go down that road and but we we don't normalize that and make that something that uh, is, you know, talked about or welcome. I think we should. Well, I think you're right on with that mi- mindset there. And it comes back down to your main point, investment and, you know, helping the people that, that we have now, but also knowing that the real, the reality is it's going to take time. And, you know, if you can be that one politician that can uh, convince the voters that, Hey, we're going to do the right thing. It's going to take time. We can lay out the plan for you, but if you trust in the program, trust in the process here, you're going to start seeing results five, 10 years down the line. Maybe not you as much. Maybe your, your kids are going to see them more because as time go, go, uh, goes on and we do everything the way we're supposed to do, you're going to see less tents in the sidewalk here. You're going to see less needles on the ground here. You're going to see less broken glass in the sidewalk from all the vehicles that have been bro- broken into. You're going to see less um, you know, animosity between the people you walk on the street. You're going to see more police walking up and down your neighborhoods, waving hi to you as you walk by to feel safe and feel like they're here to protect you. But it's going to take time to develop all that. And if people, if voters can understand that and they have somebody who's really going to work to make it happen, that's going to be a great thing. But like you said before, it doesn't take one person to, to do that. You, you, you got to work with the supervisors and then we get into, can everybody work together? Do we all have the same agenda? Or like you said, is it just different shades, shades of blue? And the person who may have the best idea, but it's going to take longer to do, are they going to be able to survive the person that says, I can do it in a year, vote for me, who may be on the other side? It's... <laughs> 
And I think it's if tough. when when uh, San Franciscans are polled or asked about what they want, right, it's pretty clear a majority of people know what they want and they all want pretty much the same thing. They want to feel safe. They want to have a place that has affordable, you know, they can afford to live like like, like anyone. Anyone just they just want to live their lives and have to worry about being attacked on the street or or being priced out of their home. Right. So like people all want the same thing. Um, and then when you pull people about how do they feel is the city on the right track it's off the chart people are like no we're not on the right track things are haywire and i think it's up it's incumbent upon the voter and the resident to put the pieces together to, to connect the dots if i want this and i'm not getting it well who's in charge the board of supervisors who are these supervisors why are we keep voting them into office why are they not uh, delivering and who who are these shades of blue what's a moderate what's a progressive like we we need to do voters need to educate themselves about the nuance of local politics in san francisco to understand what they're voting for and not to just blindly vote for someone because the local democratic party says these are the people we recommend because a lot of people rely on that they don't know who's running for school board or you know, they, they don't know any of these names, but they trust. They say, well, I'm a good Democrat and I trust the Democratic Party is going to tell me who they vetted and who's good. They don't understand that who controls the local party. There's many different versions of Democrat. A Bernie Sanders could be controlling a local Democratic Party or a Pete Buttigieg or a Kamala Harris Democrat. Those are very different shades of blue. People understand that. People know when they voted for president whether they wanted Bernie or Pete Buttigieg. They were very they had very different views uh even as democrats right so you need to understand that if the bernie shade of blue controls the local party they're only going to endorse and recommend their own shade of blue so across the board you're, you've just voted for a, all bernies and if you're not a bernie then you've just voted against your interests you need to understand who's controlling the party to know which shade of blue you're voting for and then maybe vote a different shade of blue if that doesn't match your own view and you made a great point right there that the voters have to do the research on that and I can tell you as, as a voter and you're a voter too, if you don't, if you're just dealing with everything in everyday life, people have jobs, they have kids to take care of the in and out, you know, they don't barely have enough time to sleep. It's like, you're asking me to figure out who's the better of all of these candidates who actually represents my, my values here. That's a challenge that it's hard to get people to figure out because in order to, to solve all of these problems that we had talked about in San Francisco or anywhere, part of the solution comes down to everyday people. We have to also do our part to make sure that we're that we're contributing to the narrative. I can't just write a check for $10,000, say, here you go, Democratic Party, you fix all the problems and I walk away. As a member of a society, I have to do my part, part, part as well. If I see a problem, contact the authorities. If I see a challenge, contact the city so that they know that there's issues going on. If it takes me to join a neighborhood watch so we can get the neighbors together to help solve the problem here, we have to do that. But it requires people to invest their own time in it. And a lot of people just say, hey, I just, I, you know, I got so much going on in my life. I don't have time to deal with that. I'm going to pay somebody else to figure that out. And I just trust that they're going to do it. And like we were talking about earlier, before we got on camera about the recent election, and I told you there was a part of the ballot where I didn't fill in because I don't know who these candidates are. I don't know what they stand for. I hear a 15-second blurb on TV. I don't know if they really represent me or they're just telling me what I want to, I want to hear. But on the flip side, it's, if you are that that person, how do you get a get message across? How do people get to know you? We've been talking for almost two hours here. I think anybody who listens to this is going to know a lot more about Joel and Guardio than they would have over a couple of 30-second ads that they see on TV to really know how you actually think. If I didn't know who you were prior to this and I'm listening to you now, I'm like, 
you speak, I, now that I've sat and listened to you for a couple hours, I get a better sense of who you are as a person. I develop a lot more trust there than if I never met you. So I think this is a great thing. You plan to run soon? I don't know. We'll see. I don't <laughs> Yeah, that I don't, I mean, you know, you need to look if there's a window of opportunity or if, if it's something that is meaningful or, or you can be a, a use in. Uh, so I, yeah, that I don't know. But in the meantime, uh, I do like to do community organizing and I, I do a webinar called SF Politics 101 every month. People can, uh, yeah. anyone can join and watch. I tell it, I kind of do a narrative storytelling. I use imagery. It's just, it, you know, you can just do it online from home and it's live. And then we, I talk about the history of the city, the shades of blue, help you understand what they are and then tell you how city hall works. And it's, it's about 45 minutes. And then we do 15 minutes of Q and A and it's, it's pretty popular. Uh, we get a couple hundred people every month will come and, and, and log on and, and watch and, and engage. So I enjoy doing that. And I work for a, uh, nonprofit group called Grow SF. So we're, we're kind of, our purpose is to, uh, and I'm a volunteer for that group, uh, but helping, helping grow it and run it. But the concept is we want, we don't, we do not want San Francisco to be frozen in amber. We want San Francisco to be able to evolve and grow and, and, and realize its full potential and welcome newcomers and, and, and create spaces so people can live here. And, you know, uh, and, and also focus on good public education and, and public safety that we need all these things. So, so the group grow SF, growsf.org, I would encourage people to take a look at that. And then I also work on a group called stop crime SF, stop crime And that's where we are. We want reform. We want police and prison reform, and we don't want to lock people up in jail forever and throw away the key, but we also want to make sure uh, that people feel safe and that the people who are in charge of prosecuting crime actually prosecute crime that when it's necessary, you know, and follow through. So, uh, so those are groups that I'm involved with as, as a volunteer. Uh, I have a day job where I, I work for a PR firm. Um, we specialize in tech startups. So I have my ear to the ground as far as the tech industry, which is nice. And then I, I do a lot of writing. I still write columns uh, here and there with the Examiner and other publications and my own blog. So, and I have a newsletter, about 20,000 subscribers to my newsletter. So, so I'm just putting information out there and educating people and organizing to make a better city. And if an opportunity arises to run again for office and it makes sense, uh, maybe I'll do it. But for now, uh, just happy to make change as, as I am. Well, I think your heart's in the right place, and I'll make sure to link up all those, uh, all, all the information that you provide there on the description in both uh, audio and video format. So anybody who's listening, if you want to hear more about Joel and listen, listen to the things that he writes, please click on those because I've read a couple of them. And I'm, like I said, I'm impressed to see that much of a bigger picture in these kind of articles when usually you only see one side or the other, which brings up another thing. Uh, we're getting a little long here, so we're going to wrap up the main episode, but I do want to spend time talking to you about journalism. With the with the master's degree from from Harvard, from the School of Government, bachelor degree in journalism, you've seen a lot and you've seen the progression of journalism. So I'm curious to see what your thoughts are now with the media, the way it is and how things are going. But we're going to save that for the Patreon, for the for the bonus content. In the meantime, Joel, thank you so much for coming out. I really appreciate it for everybody who uh, enjoyed the video. Please like the video and subscribe to the channel. That way, that helps the channel grow by putting this information out there. YouTube is going to see that people like it, and they're going to recommend it to more people who would probably be very thrilled to hear Joel's message here. So thank you so much, Joel. My pleasure. And everybody, you have a good one.